Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. So, Chris, episode 14. A Brewing City, a History of Alcohol in Chicago. We talk with historian Liz Gerbay. It's a little more lighthearted subject and I think a little more fun than what we've been doing lately because we're talking about brewing and spirits and how it affected Chicago. You mean it's more fun than the Fort Dearborn tragedy? Well, I'd rather have a beer than a shot. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, And we also know what happened with the alcohol at Fort Dearborn. Sure, dumped in the well or into the river. It's kind of a waste of good drink. So Liz is going to come in. She was at the History Museum and then went out on her own, looking at history through the lens of alcohol, create her own little cottage industry, as it were. Of course. What's well, a very interesting topic, and alcohol, like any commodity, is used in trade for centuries. It's made for frivolity. It's made for medicine. It's made for cleaning, disinfectant. Alcohol has a variety of uses, and it's also created a lot of gathering places for society and being social. And what I like about this interview, Patrick, is that Liz talks about origins of how alcohol moved the needle socially and affected politics in Chicago in the 1850s for example, and it's Chicago in the 19th century and its relationship with alcohol, the era of prohibition, which we all pretty much know how that worked out. And not to mention that it was a a very significant industry, uh, brewing, distilling, and distributing alcohol for the growth of Chicago. Uh, We became a real center for quite a few major breweries. Right. Liz really will range across the Chicago history with this topic and hopefully can sit back with a beverage of your choosing and enjoy a little bit of this history. Well, that's good advice. So let's get to the interview. Cheers. So here we are at Windy City Historians at the Waveland Island Studios. Oh, I like it. This is it, Waveland Island Studios. Yeah, we have Liz Garbay. Why don't we have like tiki drinks? Uh, well, that would the be... Island Studios. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about alcohol you mean, tonight, right? You mean daiquiris and things? Yeah, yeah. we are going to talk about alcohol. <laughs> yeah. We're That's... not going to drink anyway. alcohol because no, we're trying to stay on point. Chris and I would tail off pretty quickly if we started to have some <laughs> real drinks with this. So, But Liz, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Liz Garibay, and I am a historian that looks at history through the lens of alcohol. This is fantastic. That's the best way I can describe it. Where were you when I was in college (laughs) studying history? Well, that's a really good point because I started really investigating. um, People call me a beer historian, which I think is not accurate Mm -hmm. because I don't necessarily study how beer has been made, the processes, those sorts of things. I'm not a brewer. You don't go down that rabbit hole. No, I don't understand how people make beer. I'm not a scientist. That part of my brain does not work. There's no chemistry involved no, in, in right? the way you think about no, beer. No, I don't not at all. Yeah. But I've always been interested in looking at the social impact of mm-hmm. beer. 
So that's why I say I look at history through the lens of alcohol and sort of uh, the key roles that beer and alcohol have played in the development of different cities and yeah. cultures and then sort of subsets of that. So when I started kind of working on this in the early 2000s, no one was really doing it. I was in graduate school and, you know, I remember having a conversation with one of my advisors about this interest and, you know, he pretty much told me that I was insane <laughs> and that I would never go, or I would never, you were drunk, maybe. yeah, it, well, I did often have to fight the fact that people are like, oh, so you just want to drink yeah, for a living? Yeah, it's used to drink. Yeah. And which the answer is, is yes. Which is, yes, well, I I'm, it's kind of funny. I really <laughs> rarely drink when I'm working on stuff. Yeah, well, we've done a couple tours together. I don't drink until and, the very end. Yeah, you yeah. Know? That's, I typically, that's the way to do it. Same, yeah, I, when I'm lecturing, I'll usually have a beer in hand. Sure. Because there's something very social about that, right? The conversations, which and, is a whole other thing I get into. It's got to be part of your persona, too, in a way, right? Yeah, I mean, I just, there's definitely a feeling of, and the way I got into it was because we're social beings, right? Yeah. We want to be with people. We want to be with each other. And when you sit down with someone and share a beverage or share a meal, it's a very communal, warm, comfortable feeling. A lot of cultural exchanges happen that way. And yeah, yeah. Cultural exchanges, uh, deals. Yeah. It's just any sort of interaction. It's, it's always been this really interesting approach to humanity. Yeah. And totally. I, the other saying I have is that alcohol is a lubricant for history. Oh, that's for sure. You know? Yeah. And, and that's yeah. so like multi-layered as well. It makes the medicine go down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pro- probably led to some wars along the way too. Oh, led to good and bad always. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're a Chicago native, yes? I am. Yeah. Well, let's test this theory. Um, what parish are you from? St. Michael's. See, she's a real Chicagoan. Yes. Yeah. yeah I've not St. Either. Mike's is a great parish. It's old. old town. It's old. Yeah, it's old and it's old town. It's old. It's German. Yeah. It's that's Catholic. A, that's a beautiful. It's Bavarian. That's a. I look at the at the beautiful clock tower when I yeah. go by. It's it's a pretty L. great place. Yeah. So yeah. So when I was in grad school doing this stuff, no one was really interested in it. My one of my advisors told me to really pretty much go take a hike with the idea, and that I would never amount to anything if I pursued the the direction I wanted to go in, That's and harsh. I should still stick to the stuff I didn't really want to do. So the whole idea is that yes, humans want to interact in this way, and we have pretty much since we could walk, and so having a beverage in front of me when I'm talking about alcohol just makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But I usually will have it in front of me, but I won't consume it until the end. Boy, that's, that's a prop. Yeah. Right? That is so funny. You made me instantly think about the history of St. Paul in Minnesota. Uh-huh. Do you know how it was settled by Norwegian farmers? Yeah. And they could handle the isolation and the, uh, right. the cold. And the Irish went up there. And they sat out on the prairie, and they're like, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, let's get out of here. And they found it St. Paul because they couldn't deal with the isolation. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to get together, you needed people to, uh, have a drink, yeah. and talk, and that's its origins. That's humankind, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you're so true. And like speaking of Ireland, like if you go to Kilkenny or Tipperary, the pub is the, the center of the community. Yeah, I mean, you have that all over Ireland. You have that all over the United Kingdom. You have oh, that sure. in various parts of the world. The pub, the tavern, the groggery, the cantina, whatever it may be, is always going to be that sort of communal center. There are some other alcohol historians that, you know, we all have our, our jokes, our nerdy jokes. Uh-huh. And But I've heard some um, sociologists say this, too, that every small village 
in order to begin needed three things, right? A church, a school, and a tavern. And it was usually the tavern that was built first. Right. All the classes were held in the tavern and all the um, services were held in the tavern while everything was getting built because clearly that's the most important one of them all. You need food and drink. Yeah. And then some. In vino veritas, isn't that's that right. the saying? That's right. That's right. Yes. Through so, wine wisdom. So what about Chicago then? Can you tell us a little bit about Chicago's origins around spirits and liquor and beer? and oh, how, Origins. How does, how does that begin, right? One of the things that makes me a little bit crazy as a Chicago historian is that a lot of Chicago historians start talking about the 1800s uh-huh. when it's sort of like, all right, you're missing a whole at least two uh, centuries, yeah, sure. right? Yeah, right? And so um, we immediately think about Central European arrival, especially when it comes to alcohol, but you know, certainly we were British before that, French before that, mm-hmm. First Nations before that, and all these people certainly arrive and interact and influence each other. And so when it comes to alcohol, there's certainly the presence of whiskey very early on. You know, there are all these stories about Fort Dearborn, which I'll be very transparent, and a lot of the stuff that I know about Fort Dearborn is stuff that I learned while working at the Chicago History Museum, Anne Keating's book, Rising Up from Indian Country. We we interviewed her twice. We just finished a second interview Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so she's got some great whiskey tales in there. By the way, am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah. yeah. There's some great... She's got a great section on dumping whiskey into the Chicago River because people were afraid that the Indians would get a hold of it because there's such a tumultuous relationship there. But my question is, when you guys are speaking to Anne, either in the first episode and the second episode, was sort of the result of that everybody coming to understanding that John Kinsey was a piece of shit? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We spent a lot of time on that. Uh, Scoundrel is is used frequently. She she does take issue with calling him a traitor, per se. She doesn't see him as having any real allegiance. Sure. Well, his only allegiance was himself. Yes. And his trade network and his family. I mean, bringing contraband from Britain when he wasn't supposed to be doing that. Hey, he's a businessman, right? Yeah. I call him the first bootlegger. Yeah. Because he liked to sell to the Indians yeah. when he wasn't supposed to. Yep. Patrick told me, I don't know, that he would sell alcohol to the Indians, but he knew when to stop selling it to the Indians, whereas some factors, traders, yeah. traders would just be like, forget it, take as much as you want. I would say that that's probably his business savvy, right? He got them just to the point where he could negotiate whatever it was he wanted and really kind of stop close to it being a potentially dangerous affair. Right, and maybe let's talk about that, the Indians' relationship with alcohol. Yeah. Their society had no exposure to it for millennia. Right. So their bodies did not seem to have a tolerance for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, First Nations, obviously, here first, and then you get the arrival of French Canadians and later on the British and a whole other slew of people, and people are interacting. And, of course, all these sort of foreign goods are introduced, and it's kind of like, all right, well, now we have to understand what this means in terms of having a monetary value and what it means for our culture. And I think it was Tecumseh who said, don't partake in any of that because it's going to dilute our culture. Mm -hmm. And the minute you start drinking whiskey or the minute you start just engaging in any sort of these outside factors, you're destroying our own heritage, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really interesting perspective. Oh, and he's right, because you get a taste for alcohol, now you need to come up with goods to buy more of it. Yeah. It's the same with the Eskimos in uh, the Arctic. Once you get a snowmobile, it's hard, <laughs> yeah. hard to go back to the old ways. Did you ever see 
cartoonist Gary Larson in the Far Side. Yes, oh, I love. So I went to graduate school for anthropology, archaeology, and so every time I saw a Far Side related to the topic, I'd cut it out and just kind of like plaster my walls. But my favorite, absolute favorite one, was an image of these I don't know native peoples in in some African land or something like I don't even know where it was, Mm -hmm. but basically they're all sitting around and all and they're in a scurry. And they're taking their TVs and their radios, and they're running around going, "The anthropologists are coming! The anthropologists oh. are coming!" <laughs> right to hide all their right, stuff. Right, right, right. But that's, yes, that's I mean, the outside influence certainly is a factor in the evolution of different cultures and people. I mean, they have it today. France is very strict on the language. Mm. The word email is not allowed in the French. Oh, interesting. It's called courrier. Electronique. Those French are so dramatic. Because they don't want to dilute the language, yeah. the culture. I mean, and they're real serious about it, so you're quite right. Some cultures build fortresses to the outside influence. The United States, we kind of take something from everyone. Right. We beg you know. our own stuff well, from anyone. Right, right. That's how we started, really, you know, right. totally. historians. <laughs> So getting up to Western culture then, how does beer and spirits influence Chicago? Well, whenever I talk about Chicago history, you have to put it in the context of American history, Mm -hmm. right? And what's the presence of alcohol as a very young nation. And so with that British influence and that French influence too is, you know, you get a lot of sort of these spirits. Um, So like a brandy here and there and whiskey, of course. And, you know, the British had colonies in the Caribbean, so you get rum. Mm -hmm. And the spirits are really very present because they keep, right? Right. Beer is a living thing. It has a shelf life. That stuff will spoil. It's a pain in the ass to make. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't last very long. Whereas at least you've been told, not that you've done. It, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have brewed a few times. That's why I said I'll, okay. never do, I'll never do that again. All right. It's just a lot of cleaning and waiting. And the bottling um, is pretty labor intensive too. Yeah, it's just a very yeah. Whenever I sit at a brewery, I'm like, you guys, thanks for making this beer. It's delicious. It took you about I don't know what three months to make, and I'm drinking it in about three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate right. that. Thanks right. for your hard effort. But so anyway, spirits definitely very present, mostly because of They're portable. Um, 100% and they and keep. And potable. Yeah. <laughs> and they keep. And it was part of the cultures that were coming this way. And the British were actually very famous, and the early colonists were very famous for what I call having a pick-me-up when they wake up and a put-me-down, and they would drink throughout the whole day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just it was sort of like these little sips. Nothing too crazy, but... Yeah. Cider, I know. John Adams yeah. loves cider. Yeah. Well, I had a friend for who sure. had a documentary producer and director that she introduced me to at one point and and she said well he's a sipper yeah and, and <laughs> i think he usually had a, a little whiskey or bourbon or i get the impression too that maybe like winston churchill was maybe on the stronger end of that scale <laughs> yeah. of a sipper yeah. but to his 90s yeah yeah did all right so that's definitely part of the early american history and it was a currency and that culture you could trade you could certainly could, because, I mean, yeah. why wouldn't you? People you are still doing it today. If you didn't have currency of money, and you, you did all these different cultures, French, Spanish, everybody could agree to, on a price 
Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like today, you know, you get real beer nerds who find a very special beer and they don't want to buy it, but they say, hey, I have this special beer, let's trade, mm-hmm. and their websites and things, mm-hmm. sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But the early American perspective on drinking is something that certainly came to the Great Lakes uh-huh. and to Chicago. And so some of the early folks were drinking whiskey and cider and rum. The beer that was present, because there was some beer present, was mostly all imported. Mm. And it was imported from England, so that meant that the beer traditions were ales, stouts, porters. Mm. But again, pretty expensive stuff in comparison. Did those and, hold up better in transport? Is that No, not necessarily. Okay. I mean, like the, the reason beer is able to travel and preserve during those time periods is because hops... Right. There are four ingredients in right. beer, right? Water, malt, yeast, and hops. Mm-hmm. And so the hops acts as a preserving agent. So the best example out there in the world is a beer called India Pale Ale, right? right. Yeah. So the English had pale ale. They needed to send it to the troops in India. By the time it got there, it spoiled. But they realized that if they added more hops, mm-hmm. it would preserve it. And so thus was born India Pale Ale. In the United States, IPAs today... We've taken it to a whole other level where we just add just ridiculous amounts of hops and it's like this can be very bitter or, you know, these different things happen to it. But traditional IPAs, historic IPAs, just have a little bit more hops, but are still very much an ale, right? A very malty sort of bready sort of beverage. So you still have hops in stouts, porters, Mm -hmm. but they still spoil, right? Everything still has a shelf life. It's not until you add... Again, sort of thinking about what's happening today, people are now taking these stouts and porters and putting them in barrels, as in bourbon barrels or rum barrels or whatever. And so a lot of that spirit residue will infuse the beer, Mm -hmm. thus giving it a longer shelf life. So if you have a bourbon uh, barrel-aged stout, for example, right? Goose Island is one of the most, is pretty much the guys who started it all and is very famous and it's sought after. But if you have a, a BCS from Goose Island, you kind of want to hang on to it for several years because sometimes it can improve with age. And a lot of my beer nerd friends will do what we call verticals. Well, they'll have one from 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, and we'll sit there and drink all of them for all five years and wow. talk about them and, and compare notes and geek out and be super dopey about it. <laughs> right. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it, again, it's, that can happen because of the alcohol in it, right? It's not just the beer. Mm-hmm. So back in the early 1800s, that preserving agent wasn't there. So literally, you had to drink it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So again, ex- expensive imported stuff. And it's not really until um, Chicago gets its first brewery in 1835, and that is, of course, with the presence of a whole other group of immigrants, and those are the Germans. Right. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, just two years before it becomes a city. It's funny, we were just talking before you arrived that I was reading an article about a guidebook, German guidebook Mm. to Chicago for the Columbian Exposition. And it said in the guidebook that you didn't have to speak English in Chicago. You could just speak German because everybody spoke it. That's true, yeah. A lot of documents from brewers from the 18, still in the 1880s and 1890s that are all completely in German. Mm-hmm. And there's a beautiful... They were produced here in Chicago. Yeah. There's a great, for anybody who wants to look at some old 
ads or stories about what's happening in beer during the 1800s. Like my personal Bible is a series of books called The Western Brewer. Uh-huh. And The Western Brewer is, is started here in Chicago and there's so much German happening in them. It's really quite fascinating. There's a beautiful lintel that was hanging over the doorway of one of Chicago's largest breweries called the Sipe Lehman Brewery. Mm-hmm. And the original is currently, it's in Lake Geneva at Black Point Estate and Gardens in Lake Geneva, which oh. is the summer home of Conrad Sipe. And, and where was their brewery in Chicago? What was the location? So it's you know? pr- pretty much across Lakeshore Drive, across from the Field Museum, like the old okay. Michael Reese site. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that lintel, the original one, like I said, is currently at, in Lake Geneva at the Sipe Mansion. But the lintel says Sipe and Lehman. Mm-hmm. Right, and then it says its founding date, but it's all in German, mm-hmm. right? And and so that lintel probably went up in the eighteen sixties, yeah, late eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties. But that's what was going on. So yeah. and that goes well for sure into the eighteen nineties. We're just a German town. I know the police force was mostly German. Mm. You might think it's Irish, but it wasn't. Yeah, they referred to the Chicago River as the Rhine. Mm. Sure. So I mean, it's mm. just amazing. In the 1830s, 1840s. Mm-hmm. Same thing's happening in Milwaukee. Same thing's happening in Cincinnati. Same thing's happening Louis, in Detroit and St. Louis, yeah. right? In so Cleveland. You have your local brewers and brewers. Totally. Everyone starts in the same place, but if you think about why Chicago grows, mm-hmm. right? It becomes this hub. There's a transportation, right? Yep. Water. Uh, railroads are a game changer for us, yeah. right? And so Chicago starts to become this metropolis, and everybody else is sort of just sort of in a holding pattern. And beer, mm-hmm. beer does that too. Beer is very present because of the opportunities that are here. A lot of these immigrants who happen to be brewers or happen to be getting into the brewing industry help grow that industry. Mm-hmm. So there's some definitely some parallels. One question I get a lot is, what is Chicago's historic beer that I can still drink today? Have any guesses? I'm going to say old style, but that's Brewed just... in Wisconsin. Right. Oh, that's right. right. Okay. Heilman, yeah. Did you can still drink today? Yeah. I, a, I can't think of anything, a- really. Is it Ajax? I do remember seeing those cans as a kid, collecting those. They had a cone top. It was an old beer, and it was hard to find. Mm. I know it's not Lagunitas. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> They're a California import. But they yeah. love our water, anyway. Sort of, yeah. They, they're here, too. Yeah. But now they're technically owned by Heineken, so. Ah, I didn't know that. Macro-owned. Um, the answer to the question is, there isn't any. Ah, oh, good, okay. Good question. So right? that's no wonder we were struggling. And, but the, the follow-up question is always, why? Right? When you have mega brewers like Budweiser and Miller and yeah. Pabst and Stroh's, that we all know, right? right? These are all these amazing legacy brands. Right, because like Paps got that blue ribbon at the Columbian Exposition here in Chicago, right? False. It's false? false. Oh, I've been telling that wrong. <laughs> false. Oh, it's a my. great beer myth of our time. It is a myth. Yeah, we'll then. get to that. Okay, sorry. But why do we have all of these major brands and none of them are from Chicago? Right? That's, I mean, that's always the question. Is it because the Chicago River was not much better than a sewer? So you didn't have a good water? Well, you got Lake Michigan, though. So. Yeah, all the, all the water came from Lake Michigan. Plus, you have to boil it, right? Yeah, yeah. And it gets to the point where most of that garbage is out anyway. I'm going to say the gangster era probably paralyzed that. I mean, it was considered a business of ill repute for a long time uh, with Capone and those guys. Maybe Chicago just wanted to elevate its 
status on the world stage and kind of leaned against that. So you're kind of saying prohibition was what killed the yeah. brewers in Chicago? So prohibition definitely killed the brewing industry or changed it quite yeah. significantly, eventually leading us to a point where we had zero breweries in Chicago. But the story is really rooted in the 1800s, in the late 1800s. Really? And the reason we don't have a Chicago legacy brand that exists today mm-hmm. is because Chicago brewers were making so much beer, yet Chicagoans were drinking it all. Oh. <laughs> Chicago brewers never had to make more beer for outside markets. Okay. Literally, they were just making beer for Chicagoans. And what brands are we talking about? What was a Chicago brand? Sipe Brewing Company okay. right, is a great example. Founded in 1854, Lil Diversi Brewing Company, which was basically the very first brewery in Chicago, 1835, is Haas Seltzer Brewing, which eventually becomes Lil Diversi. William Lil and Michael Diversi purchase it from Haas and Seltzer. Is that where the street name Diversi <clears throat> yes. comes from? Yes, Michael Diversi. I always wonder, because it's an odd name for a street. There are a lot of contemporary Chicago street names named after 19th century brewers. Oh, See, this more is than you would know. Yeah, get, hit us with a few. That'd be... Let me think about that. I gotta, okay. I gotta, I gotta get my brain waves get to, to go in that it. direction. We, we yeah. always thought the names, you had to be a French explorer to get a yeah. name in Chicago. Like, well, I mean, like, uh, there is still a Sipe Street. There's a Lehman Street. Lehman is actually still in Lincoln Park. Yeah. Lil Street exists. Lil, yeah, L-I-L-L. Let me think about those other ones. Saganash is related to it. Okay. Well, the Saganash Tavern. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which right. Which goes back to Billy Caldwell. Cobian. That was his his name. Yeah. Named by the Native Americans. Right. So Englishmen or great English tavern keep. And so there's a lot of drinking history in Chicago streets. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. But back to beer and brewing. <laughs> I say that a lot. I find myself saying that a lot. Yeah. So yeah, so all these brewers were making so much freaking beer, and we were drinking every little bit of it. So the brewers never really, really had to leave the Chicago market, whereas other breweries in St. Louis and Milwaukee, they had the capacity to make more and take the risk to get into Chicago, mm-hmm. right? And guess what? We were drinking their beer too. So we were consuming a lot of alcohol and beer, and what ended up happening is a lot of those breweries were able to grow significantly, first coming into Chicago and then going into other markets, south and west, mm-hmm. to make them the sort of mega brewers that we know today. So in a sense, it was really our drinking habits <laughs> that provided us with zero Beer legacy. So it's almost like the brewers were kind of lazy, right? They didn't want to figure out the shipping. It's like, oh, well, just everybody will drink it. You know, I can make as much as I want. And our breweries, right? some of our breweries were giant, right? But again, yeah. didn't need to. And a lot of the, the brewer, think about the breweries back then, too. They're not like the breweries today, yeah. right? Because the breweries today have the tanks, mm-hmm. right? Have maybe a tap room, have some space. The breweries back then had milling areas they had uh, stables for mm-hmm. horses yeah, right. they had ice facilities like they needed to have these massive real estate spaces to actually function well would allow them to do their own coopering Cooperage absolutely for yeah building that, had barrel makers yeah because yeah. i mean this is also a center for lumber and so it would have been a natural to have cooperages either as part of the brewery or totally. as contractors so that was a whole part of that industry 
yeah, others are getting into the malting business so they could supply other breweries. So it wasn't just a small little operation the way we might think about it today, which, by the way, breweries today are not, no small operation. Right. But these were seriously intense endeavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people often ask me, what's your favorite Chicago beer story? And I'm like, well, that we just drank all the beer. <laughs> that's, that's pretty funny. There's fanta- no need. You couldn't pretty, ship it. You that's pretty fantastic, got drank right? Before it could get it says the- a lot about who we are. Past and present. They should have just opened the bottles and put out the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of beer stories around, you know, some of these major, like, events in Chicago history, for sure. You know, the beer story that I think the biggest beer story um, around the Chicago Fire is that the fire destroyed the 19 breweries that were within those, you know, fire boundaries. In 1871. Yeah, and those were, you know, kind of the one. Little Diversity, for example, was right there in the thick of it. Yeah. They grew so large that they had to move their small operation to Chicago and Pine. Okay, so right near the lakefront. So Pine and became Michigan Avenue. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, North Pine Street. So where that Walgreens is yeah, the water on tower. the southeast corner, that's where Little Diversity Brewing Company was. Wow. Right? Completely destroyed in the fire. That's one brewery, mm-hmm. as massive as they were, did not come back. So a lot of these really big breweries that were the biggest suppliers of beer were completely destroyed. And there are some different tales of a lot of the brewers lending their barrels to collect Lake Michigan water to help put the fire out. A lot of the mom and pop breweries in the surrounding areas grew because of it. Sipe Brewing, again, Sipe Brewing was outside the fire part of the city. The boundaries of the fire. Yeah, and they took full advantage of that growth. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, one of the interesting stories with this is that people always ask, well, how did Milwaukee become such a great brewing industry and Chicago not? And I'm like, well, actually we were. And Milwaukee was certainly thriving, but not like Chicago. Yeah. But that fire certainly. Yeah, 19 breweries, you said? Yeah, that fire say? certainly. We had other things happen. In the 1850s, we like ran out of ice, which made us run out of beer because you know we had like heat waves and things, and we had to get it from different parts of the city. Or we got you know Milwaukee again to send us some beer. And what year was that again? I think that's like 1854-ish. Okay. There was okay. Um, the great ice shortage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was no ice shortage yeah. uh, so far this winter. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. But you know, after that fire, the breweries were destroyed. Yeah. And many brewers who did not want to stay, went to the closest place where they were making beer. That was Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So really, Milwaukee's brewing industry starts to grow post-Chicago fire. And then there's a great story, too, with like um, some Wisconsin-area brewers like Joseph Schlitz, mm-hmm. who basically sends trains and boats of beer to us. You know, hey, Chicagoans, we see that you're sad, and you probably are thirsty because if we're thirsty when we're sad... And we have the drink, and so here's some beer. Was that sort of the language of what they sent? <laughs> That's the way I picture it. Oh, okay. Right? All right. I wasn't sure if you're quoting some, yeah, no, no, some no. letter or something. It was definitely... Yeah. What a gesture of goodwill. And yeah, yeah, definitely some business Friendship. savvy, right? Yeah. yeah. I think there's genuineness to it, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But look, you know, hopefully you'll remember the gesture as everybody sure. wants to when they, when they gift something like that. Right. And Chicago's brewing industry bounces back post-fire. Mm-hmm. We're actually back in it pretty quickly. Guess what tap handles you still see in Chicago today? Schlitz. Yeah. Right? People were drinking, again, all of our beer, but they were drinking a lot of the other outside market beers. And there were some people who were incredibly loyal to Schlitz because of that. 
So that sort of helps a brewery grow in a different way. I mean, then, when I was a kid, Schlitz was huge. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember those cans everywhere, and that was kind of the... Because it was a very light beer. I remember, like, kind of in the summertime. Yeah. A light-bodied beer, not a light-calorie beer, but it, it goes down pretty easy. And I remember seeing way more Schlitz as a kid than Pabst. Yeah, for exactly. example, right? I remember seeing the signs on the old taverns. Yeah, the Schlitz signs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. There's still some around. There's definitely still some around, although the city makes it very hard for those signs to be around. Yes. Well, that's there's a, a lot topic. of in- insurance issues. Yeah. <laughs> the city's made it very hard for people to drink. Period. In the modern era. So we should also though jump back. You'd mentioned 1854. Yeah. That ice shortage. But the next year, there's a, a very huge event Yeah, around beer. Can you tell that story? Yes. So again, putting this in the context of American history, during the 1840s and 1850s, you start getting a political party, the American Party, come to power. And the American Party is very much rooted in an anti-immigrant position. The, no, the know-nothings? Yes, okay. the know-nothings. Also known as the know-nothings because okay. seemingly the story is... If you would see someone from the American party walk around and you approach them and ask them a question about something, they would immediately look to the ground and say, I know nothing. I know nothing. And by the way, just as a point of reference, Abraham Lincoln hated the know nothings. Yeah. Good old Abe. Reason reason one of 1,472 to love Abraham Lincoln. And the other story (laughs) I heard about the know nothings was that it was a nativist movement. Right. Pro American, I guess, Puritan group of western right so they already consider themselves legacy yeah right they would sometimes rough up their opponents or non-anglo-saxon immigrants and then when they were hauled in to the police they would you know they'd say well i know nothing right it's amazing how history repeats itself isn't it (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed and I found that quote I was telling you about. This is what Abraham Lincoln says yeah. about the know-nothings. Quote, as a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it as all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer emigrating to some country where they have no pretense of loving liberty, to Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base ally of hypocrisy. So that's... What a guy. Yeah, that is... What a guy. Very so eloquent, too. So eloquent. Oh, my gosh. Well, of course, you know. Yeah. You know, Abraham Lincoln also didn't drink. Ah. People call him a teetotaler. I don't think he was that extreme, but he just didn't drink. He, he, there's some great quotes... And by the way, he was a ruffian when he was a kid, right? He'd like wrestle and like cause problems yeah, and start was, fights. And, yeah, he was a big guy. And he owned a he owned a, a grocery store. He sold alcohol, so he was a tavern keep at one point, yeah, right? So right. many reasons to love this guy. I'm telling you, sail <laughs> down the Mississippi. In yeah, a but he would write that having alcohol would make him feel unkept. Mm. That's a very eloquent way of saying mm-hmm. drunk, right. right? And rowdy. Right. Yeah. But he understood what the drink meant to people, right? Kind of the way we started our conversation about what it means to have a discussion with somebody but have a drink in hand. It becomes a very communal experience. So when the White House, for example, of course they had brandy or sherry or whatever it was they were drinking. And when he had dinner parties, 
It was all very abundant. And he always had a glass in front of him at these affairs because he didn't want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. He wanted mm-hmm. people to think that I'm one of you. We're all in this together. Yeah. And so these are some awesome, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln is this special, well, special sounds like dude. Mary, Mary Todd Lincoln was probably make, making sure the brandy was there and everything else because she came from a very aristocratic family. Yeah. I, she's special too. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so the Know Nothing Party or the American Party was sort of in a, in a really good place for themselves in the early 1850s, and in 1855, our mayor, Levy Boone, is part of the American Party, and mm-hmm. his connection to being a, a pure American, if you will, is that his, his great uncle was Daniel Boone. Right. So he's right. like oh. the great nephew of Daniel Boone. Right. Or something great like Kentucky. That. Yeah. The, the pure pioneer, right? Yeah, the uh, Indian fighter. Yeah. And frontiersman. So he had it, like, he thought he was a real deal. I wonder if he wore a coonskin cap, you know. I'm sure in private. Yeah. In private. <laughs> <laughs> in the log cabin or wherever it was. Yeah. So this guy ends up becoming Chicago's mayor. And the American Party is very present. And, of course, in the 1850s, we are a a tried-and-true immigrant city, Mm -hmm. right? Germans, Irish, Poles, Italians, everybody, pretty much, by by the 1850s. And, again, the Germans were the ones who were making beer, had some of the earliest breweries. But one of the things that is, of course, connected to the breweries are the taverns, the saloons, right? Mm -hmm. It was very easy for people to get a liquor license in 1800 Chicago. Literally would just show up to City Hall, pay a few bucks, find four walls and a roof and some booze and start selling. Whereas on the East Coast, in Boston, for example, it was really difficult to get a liquor license. But this is Chicago after all. So it provided a very easy entry point for someone to be their own boss, right? right? And have a job. So saloons and taverns were incredibly important, not just for the communal aspects we were talking about earlier, right? We mm-hmm. crave that. Yeah. But it also offered a lot of opportunity. So suddenly Chicago becomes this town of beer makers and tavern keeps. Mm-hmm. And most of them are immigrants. So the target for Levy Boone was alcohol. And what ended up happening was he really wanted to change a couple of laws. He wanted to raise liquor license fees to have an annual fee and to be a quarterly fee. So it became very uh, expensive. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest one of them all, I think, was that he made it illegal for bars to be open on Sundays. The only day off for working people. Totally. Right. Because right? this yeah. is before the 40-hour work week and people are working yes. six days, sometimes six seven day. days a week. Yep. Right? 10, 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week. Your yep. day off is Sunday. Everyone wants to drink. So this was sort of a, a big deal. And it's not a big deal because, hey, I want to drink on my day off. Right. It's more about the fact that if, if anyone is familiar with German culture, or if you've been to Germany, or if you've been to any part of Europe, for example, yeah. or any part of the world, for real, you know, if you really think about it, having a beverage, an alcoholic beverage, mm-hmm. is just part of the culture. Yeah. Right? You, people be having a glass of wine in France yeah, in the exactly. middle of the day. And go back to work. Well, around Labor Day, I was in Germany for a week visiting some friends and down near Stuttgart area. Hmm. Almost every night we went to a beer garden. Yeah. 
uh, part of it was because they wanted to show me some different places around, but that was an easy place to go. It was inexpensive for food and, and, and drinks. And generally you went there to socialize and there's no TVs and it's usually outdoors and the weather was great that week. And we usually had a beer or two. That was about it. Yeah. But also had some food and so it was it was it's a gathering place and the German beer garden it's culture key. is is elemental because also the housing is not huge and so you, you don't have a lot of extra living space typically. And so I think that also encourages that culture. Also the same thing. The housing in the eighteen fifties in Chicago was Probably quite tight and small. Yeah. Big tenements and kind of a thing. Yeah, you want to get out of the house. Yeah. So beer drinking, or beer itself, and gathering like that on Sundays wasn't about consumption, but it was more about gathering. And the Germans who were here basically felt... There's, there's something also called German festive culture, right? You get together on a Sunday and you sing, Right, you're you're having a good time. You might have a parade. Who knows? Right, <laughs> this German festive culture is really important. So the minute that Levy Boone wanted to close taverns or beer gardens on Sundays, was the minute that the Germans and a lot of the other immigrants associated with this whole thing start thinking that their very identity is being attacked, mm-hmm. and that was where everybody kind of drew the line. And this was an anti-immigrant. 100%. So Mayor Boone yeah. was like, aha, I'll get the Germans. Yeah, I'll, I'll take care of all these people, I'll all this ban, riffraff. I'll ban it's it on Sunday. Yeah, and so it was just a very definitely an attack on cultural identity. Right. And that was just, that was crossing the line. So what ends up happening is on April 21st, 1855, a lot of the saloon owners who decided to stay open on Sundays mm-hmm. had been arrested. And on this day, there's going to be a trial at City Hall, which City Hall has always been where it is on Clark Street. Mm-hmm. So the different immigrant groups start to organize, never had organized before. And in various parts of the city, they kind of gather and decide to storm City Hall and get this guy, Right. And so there's a story of them crossing Clark Street Bridge. And at that point, we'll ask the bridge, the bridge expert to tell us a little bit about what that bridge was. <laughs> well, it's a swing bridge, yeah. which means there's a pier in the center of the river, and then the bridge rotated on a horizontal axis, kind of like a Lazy Susan, uh, on a turntable. And what I read, at least on the research for the bridge part, was that the bridge tender left the bridge open for a while. Possibly it was because there were ships passing, which would be the typical reason, but... It gave the constabulary a chance to gather and defend the courthouse and the city hall because they knew that this mob of immigrants was coming possibly to break these folks out. And I think they called in uh, the police. And then eventually they opened the bridge and I believe there was usually a, a policeman on duty there and they would sometimes just run you know, northbound or southbound first. The immigrants were coming from the north. Yeah. And they tried to have this, the northbound traffic come first and stop folks on the north side from going through, and they, they wouldn't have it. They sort of pushed the cop out of the way and op- opened up the, the bridge and went, went down on their way towards Yeah, and City so Hall. you have an angry mob sort of getting all the angrier because there's an obstacle 
All right. But eventually they got to the other side. Which, by the way, the bridge tender was a pointed position by the mayor at that point. Uh huh. So that makes a lot they, of sense. It would not be unusual that the crowd would probably clue in on that and know that they're in cahoots with the mayor. Right. Probably not a German either. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> so they end up crossing and heading to City Hall, and punches are thrown, shots are fired, a big riot ensues. One guy, Peter Martin, a German, dies. And it's a big to-do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Chicago's first civil disobedience, right? Very first moment of civil disobedience in the record. And it's called the 1855 Lager Beer Riot because in 1855, lager beer... By the 1840s, by the way, lager was introduced, the style of lager. There's two styles of beer, ale and lager. Mm-hmm. And lager was finally introduced in the United States because the yeast that you need to make lager was introduced in the 1840s via Philadelphia. And can you explain the difference between lager and ale? I used to know that, and I can't Yeah, basically, it's it's a type of yeast Uh that's used, right? And there's also temperatures, right? Mm -hmm. So there's yeast, and there's temperatures. And then have top fermenting and bottom fermenting. And so anything that you know as a light, straw-colored, Pilsner, Kolsch, lager... Mm -hmm sort of crisp and refreshing, right? Mm-hmm. That's just in the general lager family. Mm-hmm. And then stouts, porters, ales, that's in the ales. And then you have a bazillion styles today mm-hmm. that are subsets of these two, these mother styles, right? Okay. And so we had only, like I said, ales and porters beforehand, but we needed that special yeast. And that cold technology, too, was really pivotal. And so we finally get that yeast to the United States in the 1840s via Philadelphia. If you actually okay. go to Philadelphia, there's a beautiful big plaque that says, yeast for lager was first brought here. It's a big deal. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. in 1847, Chicago gets its very first lager brewery called the John Huck Brewery. Okay. By the way, just to sort of go back into history a little bit, too, yeah. Lil Diversi, which originally was Haas Sulzer, one of the investors in that brewery was William Ogden, our very first mayor. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, Ogden okay. was obsessed with transport, with railroad, real estate, and hops. And he really understood the value and importance of beer and what it was going to do. So he invested. And later on, he invested in John Huck, too. I think that once he sort of getting, got started to get a little more political, he sort of let go of those investments. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say it's probably more because of time, not because of you know, other reasons. It wasn't lack uh, of interest. Probably. Yeah. But you need, right. you need trains, which he invested in to deliver the hops. Right. There was definitely some good strategy there. He had, the hand, he had his hand in everything. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. And aren't you glad it wasn't John Kinsey who won that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. John H. Kinsey. Well, actually, John Kinsey dies in uh, 1828. So his right. son, John H. Kinsey, and, and Juliet Kinsey is in Chicago about 1840. So, so there's this riot. Riot. Civil unrest. 1855 Lager Beer Riot. Called Lager Beer Riot because that's what people were drinking yeah. at this point in time in Chicago. But for me, the civil unrest part is really important, right? Mm-hmm. These different groups that never really communicated, in a sense, on this level for sure, organized because this was really important to do this and to fight back for the first time. Because I think I've heard you tell the story before yeah. that... They probably didn't vote prior to this. Right. Many people didn't vote. And, of course, at this point, it was only men who were voting Mm -hmm. as well. So they didn't vote. So while the civil disobedience part is really important, the organizational part becomes all the more important because the following year, Levy Boone is up for Mm re-election. 
and they all thinking, well, this guy sucks. <laughs> we can't have this happen again. Yeah. So those groups stay organized, and the next year they say, hey, you should go out there and vote because we have a say. Yeah. And they stayed organized. They voted, and Levy Boone did not get reelected. So for me, the 1855 Lager Beer Riot is not only the city's first moment of civil unrest. To me, the riot is truly the moment where Chicago gets its identity as a political machine. Mm -hmm. Right? And guess what? All these immigrant brewers suddenly start getting really involved in politics. Mm. Right? And things are starting to sort of shape for us now in the way that politicians are going to have a a hand in, in most everything, but it's very much rooted in that immigrant story. Mm-hmm. And then things eventually will change again, but in the 1800s, this is what's going down. And it's really important to not only our city's political history, our social history, our overall history, but certainly our beer history. Was this a primarily a German event, or were there other ethnic groups as part of this? I would say primarily, but definitely other ethnic groups involved. By the way, I'm the executive director of an organization called the Chicago Bruseum, mm-hmm. and we have an exhibition on beer at the Field Museum oh, right fantastic. now. It's called Brewing Up Chicago, How Beer Transformed a City. When did it open, and when does it... Uh, it opened yeah. November of 2018, okay. and it closes in 2020. Okay, cool. But the 1855 Lager Beer Riot is a story we tell in it, but it's so complicated that we actually had to make a video, right? Because it's, again, you can't just use, like, a a label or, you know, something to tell the story. So we made the video, and the video is narrated by now Chicagoan actor Michael Shannon. Oh, yeah, he's great, wonderful actor. Yeah, and people always ask me, hey, how did you afford to get Michael Shannon, or how did that happen? And I'm like, well... This is why you should just drink in a bar. We drink at the same bar. Old town, old house. Yeah, and so you know, I was like, "Hey, Michael, will you will you narrate this thing for me?" And he's like, "Yeah, tell me more." And he's like, "Yeah, sure." Great. Uh, and we just won an award for it by the Illinois Association of Music. And too. we should also mention that you do a fair amount of tours, not only around Chicago, but in, in other countries and other parts of the United States. Yeah. And you can find out about that at your website, History on Tap. Yeah. So all of this alcohol research that I started to do was sort of just for me, for fun. Yeah. And I really kind of fell into a space where I was able to tell stories of the past, factual stories of the past, and connect them to alcohol. And lo and behold, people love to drink and learn. And so I started a company called History on Tap. I did a lot of things at museums around the city, around the country, and it turned into doing local tours, regional tours, national tours, international tours that are all rooted in sort of learning about a place through alcohol. Through is, that lens. Yeah. Or fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> it sometimes gets fuzzy. Are you interviewed in it? It's literally a narrative, a script that we oh, wrote. okay. And using various images, and then Michael just narrates it. It's only like three minutes long. Okay, cool. Well, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of his. So. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a good guy. Is that video on YouTube or? We have it on our Chicago Museum website. I yeah. gotta check that out. What's the name of, of the video? The 1855 Lager Beer Riot. Well, that's easy cool. to remember. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we'll connect on okay. our website to yeah. it as well. So w- how did Mayor Boone react to this at the moment? Like that day, was he just like his ancestor, you know, fighting off <laughs> the attackers? Or, he was or... no Daniel. Okay. <laughs> I think he was, if you look at a picture of him, you're like, this guy? How is he related to Daniel Boone? He's sort of like a nerdy old squirrely looking dude. Uh, (laughs) 
You could take him on easy. I could take him on easy. Um, I think he was probably scared shitless, to be yeah, honest with yeah, you. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. And he hid in the top of City Hall. Uh-huh. So he's and, a coward. Yeah, and he had all his police, you know, people protecting him. And, you know, I think... It's funny he, how things don't change. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> History repeats itself. And his advisors had to say stand down and don't do this because it could be bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think he was ever the same after that. You know, there should be a bar named after the, the Spear Riots. I mean, it sounds like it's very monumental in the story of Chicago. It's a pretty awesome story. Yeah. But just one of many beer stories in our city. The Volstead Act. Act. That was a game changer in this town. All over the country, 1920. When people ask me to talk about prohibition, they also always ask, how did that happen? How did it just happen like that? And the answer is, it didn't just happen. As long as human beings have been doing something that's enjoyable, there's always been someone in the background going, don't do that. (laughs) Don't run with scissors. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go swimming after you've eaten. That's right. Wait a half hour. (laughs) There's always the Puritan skulking somewhere. Yeah, and so temperance... And the temperance movement has always been around since the beginning of, of our young country. It's had momentum at different moments in time. The right people, the right places were a catalyst for a lot of this stuff happening. We were going to go through a prohibition uh, in 1860, mm-hmm. but of course, it was the beginning of the Civil War. And so people are like, eh, keep drinking. You're going to need that. And it doesn't become as important as bigger issues in yeah. our country. So. There are these waves, right, that's happening. Temperance movement is ever-present. I mean, 1833, when Chicago's a township, I believe it's the same year as the American Temperance Union's foundation. Mm. Oh, You know, the organization that gives this umbrella organization. And then... Where was that founded? Was that in Evanston? Or Evanston had... So that's... So the Women's Christian Temperance Union... Okay. ...is founded actually in Ohio. Okay. And then later moves to Evanston, Illinois, right? Which affects much of Evanston because... That town is dry until like 1978. Yeah. Right? So these are things that we still see the sort of effects. Well, Matt, one of the northern suburbs, Mm. was dry for a long time. Yeah. And you had to drive down to like Schaefer's (laughs) on the border in in Evanston, oftentimes to buy your wine or beer or liquor, and you couldn't get it in Wilmette. That's why Linwood exists, right? Because the forest... With the Blue Bloods, you know, the temperance There's people. so many stories connected to all these yeah. stinking temperance people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and access to alcohol. I mean, we could be here for hours. But really, it didn't just happen. Right. Right? By the 19-teens, it's the right set of factors, and 1920 prohibition happens. And it lasts 13 years. Roosevelt ends up winning partially winning the election because he's running on what we call a wet ticket, right, mm-hmm. to bring back alcohol. And the reason he says we're going to bring back alcohol is not only because people want it, but because we're going to tax the hell out of it. Historically, yeah. mm-hmm. we've always taxed the hell out of tobacco and to, alcohol. Going back, to, yeah. Yeah. going back to George Washington. Totally. Makes sense. Because you know why? We will pay. Yeah, right. right. We will pay to have this stuff. Exactly. And it works. So why not? It's a win-win. Yeah. So prohibition definitely is the beginning of the demise for a lot of breweries. The breweries that do survive are able to make soda, are able to make vinegars, other sort of liquids that are similar to a canning line or a bottling line and such. The biggest one that was around, Shanehoffen Brewing Company, around the late 1800s, 
They survive by making uh, soda pop called Green River, which still oh, yeah. exists, I think. Yeah, right? Sure. Tastes like green jello. Do you have a... Oh, Bottom nice. Up there on top of the yeah. cabinet. Nice. And what about like the gangsters? Did they tap into any of the beer? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot of stories about the involvement of these different crime organizations getting involved because, you know, it's a market. It's good right? money. It's, yeah. I think there's a guy, my friend John Binder wrote a book called Al Capone's Beer Wars. Mm. So if and people mm-hmm. are interested in getting really into the gangster side of yeah. it, go get I've John's book. book. Yeah, yeah, go get John's book. I tend to be a beer stein half full uh-huh. kind of gal, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So I actually love to talk about the good side of prohibition. Mm-hmm. And I am very thankful that prohibition happened. I'm very sorry for a lot of the businesses it put out and yeah. ended up destroying but there's a lot of good that comes, I think, from prohibition culturally as an American For culture. For instance. For instance, think about drinking in bars, right? Mm-hmm. If you were in a place where you were drinking, you were technically doing something illegal. Which, by the way, the law, the Volstead Act, the 18th Amendment, mm-hmm. says that you cannot produce, manufacture, distribute, sell alcohol. It says nothing about consumption. Mm-hmm. I love this legalistic interpretation. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Right? So right. technically, if you knew and you got busted for just drinking, you could probably get out of it. Right? Uh-huh. Right. Your Honor, I was not manufacturing it. Yeah. I was not distributing it. Yeah. I was just drinking it. And right? As far as I know, this was produced before the, the, the <laughs> act went into effect, right? Yeah. Totally. So these spaces where people are illegally drinking right? Known as speakeasies. Yeah. You're already doing bad stuff. So it's almost like... You're a scofflaw then. Totally. Yeah. And it's almost like other stuff that you may be into Mm -hmm. didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Or different ways you're trying to express yourself didn't matter. For instance, women, right? Women drinking in these places. Women were not allowed to drink in bars before that. But if you were a woman drinking in a bar, you either working... Right? You owned it mm-hmm. with your husband mm-hmm. working or you were a certain kind of lady offering a different kind of service. Another working girl. Yeah. Right. Uh, the world's oldest profession. Right. Right? So... Well, maybe after farming. <laughs> which came knows? first? Maybe the chicken or the egg? Yeah. I don't know. All right. <laughs> so women being in these spaces was sort of kind of like, all right, whatever. Right? So if you think about the result of that is there's an empowerment for women. Mm-hmm. And it's also parallel with, you know, the women's right to vote. Think about fashion, yeah. right? We leave the 19th century with these long dre- black dresses, these little oh, the pillbox hats and, the, yeah. and good grief, I can't imagine, long, all know? the girdles and Yeah, and, sud- and, and suddenly women are starting to feel empowered enough to rip it all off and you have the birth of the flapper. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so I think women's movements are very much rooted in what's happening during Prohibition, in mm-hmm. these crazy, tumultuous situations that we're in. Gay people, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they weren't called gay back then. They were called romantic friendships. And if you were maybe found having a romantic conversation with someone of the same sex, people mm-hmm. probably might look at you funny, but whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So they were sort of a place where, almost like a safe place. Same with interacting with people of different ethnicities, you know, different skin colors, African-Americans were never allowed to go into these spaces, right? Right. But now two things happened. They were suddenly 
often provided opportunities for jobs, right? Entertainment, mm -hmm. jazz, the birth of jazz yeah, can right. be rooted to this. Right. But there are also places where they could be patrons, not a big deal. And these, a lot of these speakeasies were called black and tans. Mm. And also you have a lot of the, the higher end speakeasies. You have these people who are throwing back the gin and talking about philosophy and literature and art and culture, right? Yeah. Exchanging ideas. And we now know of some great folks like Ernest Hemingway or F. Scott Fitzgerald who end up writing these massive literary pieces as a result of that time period and illegal drinking. And many of them go to France because it's legal there and right. back and forth and stuff. But this group of people were, called, were also known as the gentilectuals. All right, because right. they're drinking gin and just talking about all the important stuff, mm -hmm. which ends up giving us a lot of great pieces of cultural work. Yeah, right. And think of the jazz. You have Louis Armstrong, totally. and King Oliver, and and also you have, like you said, you have the women in the in the spaces now. Now you got to entertain the women, <laughs> and one way to do that is music and jazz. Yep. So now you bring them all together before they were maybe separate pieces. Well, and they were yeah. part of the entertainment, oftentimes. But now, singing, dancing, but I whatever. know that a, a tavern didn't really, like Joe's Tavern didn't really have music because they were there to drink. No, and, and the way people, you, like you have to think about speakeasies too. The like way nightclub. The way you think club. about bars today. Right. There's right. something for everyone, right? right. If you mm -hmm. want to go to a crappy ass place, mm -hmm. you could find that back then. If you wanted to go to some real swanky place, you could yeah. find it back then. There was everything that we had today. Yeah. And everything in between, right? In fact... Alcohol, industrial alcohol was still available, and people suddenly became chemists, and they could extract the bad stuff that would potentially kill you, mm -hmm. and you could go to the lower end places and not really understand or know the source of the alcohol and take that risk, Yeah, right? Or you could go to the higher end places where you know it was better, a little bit better. Unless so, you're going to make your own bathtub gin. Right? right. But it all still tasted like, like, a lot of that industrial alcohol still tasted like crap, Yeah. right? So what happens is that a lot of the higher end speakeasies you have the patrons sort of asking for something better, mm. and you start getting these wonderful little cocktails, right? The birth of mixology as we know it. So Is for that really me, what started that? That was a, certainly good, an aspect to it. Yeah, I for know, sure. In New Orleans, there was a came out of a kind of a pharmacy background. Yeah, there's a great pharmacy museum in New Orleans. Yes, that sort of tells you a little bit about this. So for me, when I think about prohibition, yeah. I think all of the cultural value it right. added to us today, especially as a woman. Yeah, well, sure. No, I mean, because think of what it was like before. Yeah, well, any minority, really. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right, right. These Absolutely. Were, these are male spaces. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. So I, that's what I like to get into. Oh, you got to answer the Paps Blue Ribbon then. Oh, yes. yes. 1893 World's Fair important for many reasons, but also important to the beer industry because it's really the first time that the beer industry has a major platform. So in the many buildings that existed, there was one called the Agricultural Building. Mm -hmm. And basically you would go in there and all the brewers were given a space, kind of like a, a big trade show, right? Yeah. And you could build a little booth and a whatever you wanted to do and exhibit your beer and blah, 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 right? And the bigger your booth, your display meant the more beer you sold, which meant it was probably really good because a lot of people were buying it. So there's a big battle between all these like bigger breweries. The best example is Anheuser-Busch and Pabst, right? Right. They end up, they hate each other to begin with, and they have these big displays, and 
basically... Because Anheuser-Busch is out of St. Louis and Pabst is out of Milwaukee, Correct, right? yeah. And they're already rivals, and Pabst ends up making this crazy display that blows Anheuser-Busch out of the water. And aside from the display, there is sort of a beer competition. Mm-hmm. And the judges who were involved actually knew nothing about beer. There's one German guy. And they were judged on all these different factors that kind of made no sense. But long story short is that it comes down to Anheuser-Busch and Pabst. And it turns into this crazy affair because at one moment, Bush is in the lead. Another moment, they decide that, no, Pabst has more votes. And they go back and forth and back and forth. In the end, Pabst ends up winning. Right. Here's the thing. Every single brewery that had a display at the World's Fair was given the same medal. It was just thanks for showing up. It was like the Millennials yeah. World's a Fair. Participation yeah. Award. Yay, yeah. you're here. Oh, that's great. Oh. Right? Yeah. Every single person got the exact same medal. There was nothing to be won. Pops ended up getting a certificate, nice fancy certificate. I think he said, you're the winner. That's it, all right? So how does the blue ribbon thing come to be? Prior to the fair in the 1880s, mm-hmm. Frederick Pabst, Colonel Pabst, basically says, I am going to start putting these beautiful little silk blue ribbons on our bottles to make them look fancy. And of course, we know that packaging matters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Look at labels today, whatever. Was he looking to attract women too, or something? Or no, he was just looking at okay. to you know make it look just aesthetics. Yep, These yep. are physical blue ribbons. Silk blue ribbons, okay. right? Yeah. And it worked, and he started selling a lot of beer. Yeah. And so the blue ribbon precedes the fair. I think it's like 1884. I want to say. So by many years, and so, so when... So almost a decade. Yeah, so when after the fair happens, the only thing he changes is voted the best is the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Mm. And it's not until later on when they change the label on the bottles, and then cans don't show up until the 1930s, yeah. and they create the cans to display that blue ribbon, right? It never says awarded the blue ribbon at the fair, it just says voted best, Ah. At the 1893 World's and Fair. And people just did the shortcut mm-hmm. and put the two together. Yeah. So let's debunk yeah. this myth. Yeah. You mentioned the can. Have you been to Dayton, Ohio? I have not been to Dayton, Ohio. There's a, a museum in Dayton. It's sort of their science industry. The can was invented in Dayton. Oh, nice. Yeah. The and they have a whole thing on it. Awesome. And it was a big deal. Nice. It was a big so deal. So the other connection I have to beer is, well, one of many. My uncle <laughs> worked for ITW. Illinois Tool Works, and he was given the task of trying to come up with a better way to hold six-packs together than the, the rings, because, you know, the, the ducks with the rings around their necks, environmental, yeah. environmental issue, and I don't know that he really ever solved it, but I remember talking to him, trying to come up with all different ways where you could create a six-pack holder that would not either use the plastic or cause that potential problem with uh, wildlife. Wow. Interesting. So interesting. Yeah. And he'd already actually gotten a patent for something else from ITW. Oh. Huh, cool. So that's beers everywhere, fun. Patrick. My, my Uncle Bob. Beers yeah. everywhere. We're connected to beer yeah. no matter and that's where we o- are. That's the only German I know. Ein Bier bitte. Oh yeah. yeah. Of course. Which... It's important. That's yeah. all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. 
But this has been great. Yeah, Thank you. thanks, Liz. Thank you very and much, Thanks for Liz. having me, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, uh, History on Tap. History on Tap. And dot the, com. And the, uh, yeah, Chicago Bruzium. Bruzium. Dot org. Check those out. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. Wouldn't you love to go back in a time machine and go to a speakeasy? Because my grandparents got off the boat in Chicago and they literally walked into speakeasies. This was the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, when they my people came here. Yes, but I'm a little bit of a weirdo in that I really don't care about anything after 1900. <laughs> so okay. I we all have our periods. Like my That's yeah, okay. yeah, my we're, we're in the French. 1680s and whatnot, so we, we get it. Yeah, my wish list would be back to go into like the real shit box of the 1850s and 60s. Yeah, You want to be at you want to be at the beer the garden. Lake house with or, yeah, I want to see really kind of like the beginnings of it, yeah, right? Yeah. Because we just lost so much documentation to the fire, right? That I really just want to see what was here. You want to be at Little Diversity, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. on a typical or, day. Or Miller's Tavern, yeah. or the Wolf Tavern across. The I way. would love to be at Sognash yeah. Tavern, Wolf yeah. Tavern, Miller's Tavern. All have of those. Kinsey playing his fiddle. And... I would get a canoe and cross right. the river and right. go to all of them. My yeah. my little pub crawl. Yeah, well, you could do it in a canoe. I know. I would, would, get, be... I would totally get one. Yeah, right. And then you could go to uh, <laughs> go down Jean... to Bridgeport Hard Scrabble. Then you could go to Jean Baptiste Pointe de Sable's house and have some wine. Yeah. I mean, I'm in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's where I would take the time machine. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hoggenson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.